following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. And to these frightened disciples, and to us, Jesus says in John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth that it reveals to us, for the person that it reveals to us. And Father, as we look at your word this morning, as we spend time in John 14, I pray that we would see the truth more clearly, that you would open our eyes, that we might see how Christ meets our deep longing for truth. We ask these things in his name and for your glory. Amen. So we've got these confused, anxious disciples. We've got us who are confused and anxious and worried and uncertain. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What comfort. I mean, it's not just intellectual assent, but he says, trust, rely on me, rest in me. What about God are we supposed to rest in? In verses 2 through 4, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus describes heaven as the Father's house, this palatial mansion where he lives, where Christ is going and preparing a room for everyone who is in Christ. If you are in Christ today, Jesus is preparing a place for you right now in the Father's house. 
And he says, if I'm going through all this work to get it ready for you, you'd better believe that I'm going to come back and take you there. We take incredible comfort from the fact that Christ is preparing a place for us in heaven. But then Jesus adds this little phrase, and you know the way to where I am going. And we say, I'm not sure if he's right. And Thomas says, I'm not sure if you're right. Because heaven is a comfort, yes. It gives us the long view. It lets us know that God is on his throne, that all things will end up well. But in the meantime, we're here. What do we do? In verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He says, heaven sounds great. Living with you, living with the Father, awesome. We're all about that. Let's do it. Can I have an address to plug into Google Maps? Because I don't know where you're going, so how do I know how to get there? This is why we long for truth. We're made for heaven. We're made for a world that works differently than this one. We don't know what to do with this world. It's unpredictable. It's uncertain. It doesn't play by the rules. This is a world where George Towns can go in for a routine checkup on Tuesday morning and 24 hours later be undergoing a triple bypass. He's healthy. He's fine. But inside, it's unpredictable. Who knows what's going on? This world doesn't follow the rules. And so we, we long for truth to know how to make sense of this world and how to live well in it. And to this longing, to meet this longing, when Thomas says, Jesus, where are you going? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus meets our longing for truth, not simply by telling us about the truth, not simply by pointing to truth or starting to reveal truth. He meets our longing for truth by being the truth. He meets our longing for wisdom about how to live in this world by being the way. Christ meets our longing in a way that we couldn't have expected. And what do, what do we learn about Christ, about this truth, from these four little words? I am the truth. This is what we're going to laser in on this morning. What do we learn about Christ? What do we learn about this truth? How deep has Christ met our longing for truth? First, we learn that the truth is personal. Jesus says, I am the truth. Me, this one that you're walking around with, that you're talking to, that you're interacting with. The truth is not abstract, Thomas and Philip. The truth is not out there in the ether. It's right here. It's a person. It's to be related to, not just understood. It's to be interacted with and loved, not just analyzed. We interact with the truth like we interact with a friend or a spouse. We laugh with them. We talk to them. We learn from them. This means that anything we know, any accumulation of knowledge, any facts, any data that, we're ga- that we gather, and this world is really good at gathering facts and data, all of it means nothing, is a guarantee of nothing without a relationship to the person of the truth. Without relation to Christ, our data is used for security breaches, for identity theft. Without relation to Christ, our knowledge about one another is used for gossip and slander and blackmail. Accumulation of knowledge is no guarantee of wisdom, 
or of individual growth or societal progress without a relation to the one who is truth. This also means, and this is directly at me, that if we view the truth like Spock does, cold, unemotional, rigid, unforgiving, we're absolutely wrong. The truth is a person, and we're supposed to love people, not just analyze them. We're supposed to be involved with people. We are supposed to love and be moved by the truth. And for all of us, the fact that the truth is a person means that we are going to disagree with him. You have never met a person that you agree with 100%. You might be a Democrat and they might be a Republican. You might be a Panthers fan and they're a Falcons fan. You might like Diet Coke and they like Coke Zero. We disagree with people because people have opinions and they're different than ours. The truth is a person. We are going to disagree with Jesus. I'm not saying we should disagree with Jesus. I'm not saying that we can sit and rest in that disagreement. But we need to recognize the fact that we are fallen and Christ is the perfect truth. And so we're going to disagree. If you've never disagreed with Jesus, it doesn't mean that you're a super saint, that you're very over-the-top holy. If you've never felt like Jesus was calling you to do something that was too hard, if you've never said, Jesus, if I'm honest in this situation, I'm going to lose a friend. If I act with integrity here, I'm going to lose my job. If I, if I obey your command to be generous, I'm going to be ruined financially. If you've never felt like the commandments of Christ are too heavy, are too weighty, if you've never seen something about God that you think, man, God would really be better if he weren't so this, if you've never disagreed with Jesus, it means that you haven't met him. Either you're avoiding him, so you haven't had the opportunity to disagree with him, or you've made him up. Really, what you've done is taken the person out of Jesus and made him a robot. He's one that agrees with what you agree with, that pats you on the back when you do something good, that encourages you when you're feeling down in the dumps, but never challenges you, never disagrees with you, never interrupts your life, never inconveniences you. If you've never disagreed with Jesus, you haven't met him. The question isn't whether or not we will disagree with Jesus, but who's going to give when we do disagree with Jesus. And I would suggest that we should be the one to give, because he's right. Why is he right? Well, one of the reasons is the second thing we learn about the truth, that the truth is eternal. Jesus says, I am the truth. This should sound to us a lot like Exodus 3. When Moses meets God at the burning bush and God calls him to go back to Egypt, rescue my people, and Moses says, I need a name. Who, who are you? Who is sending me to do this thing? When they ask who you are, Mo- who, Moses, who sent you? Why should we listen to you? Who am I to tell them sent me? And from the, from the burning bush, God says, tell them I am who I am has sent you. In other words, I exist. I am God. I am. The basic fact of the universe is that God exists. Underneath everything, before everything, after all things, above all things, God is. And in the Greek of the New Testament, Jesus is saying the exact same thing. I am. Jesus says, I am eternal. I have been around a long time. Even if he hadn't created the world, even if he hadn't set it running, even if he weren't omnipotent over it, he's been around long enough to know the truth. 
He has done all those other things, but on top of all that, he is eternal. He is the truth. This is hugely comforting to us because it means that this eternal truth that knows everything that's going on in the world, that knows why things are happening, that knows us intimately, is a person who loves us. This means that he knows our sins deeply and better than we know our sins, and he loves us. It means, this means that he knows our needs deeply and better than we know our own needs. And because he loves us, he provides exactly what we need. The fact that the truth is eternal shouldn't cause us to shake our fist and be like, we don't have a chance to be right. It should bring comfort. It should bring unspeakable comfort to us because this eternal truth is a person who loves us. Finally, we learn that the truth is exclusive. I am the truth, Jesus says. Not a truth, not one truth, not my truth or his truth. I am the truth. Again, when we disagree with Jesus, we can't both be right. Someone's got to change. He is the truth. We are wrong. Just, we're wrong. That also means, and this is the really good stuff, this means that all truth is God's truth. Anywhere we see something true in the world, is, it has its root in Christ. Because if he is the truth at the bottom of all things, any little truth that we see springing up in the world has to come from him. Understanding this, laying hold of this, will make us gracious and patient and charitable, especially as we interact with an unbelieving world, especially as we engage with our non-believing friends and neighbors and family. Why? Recognizing that all truth is God's truth, all truth is rooted in Christ, lets us enter into the things that they love, lets us pick up on things that they love and long for and celebrate them and use those things to connect back to Christ. It lets us talk about the people that they love and celebrate things like selflessness, like self-denial, like simplicity of lifestyle in someone like Gandhi. It lets us read the books and the literature that they love and celebrate the courage and friendship and self-sacrifice and the refusal to use evil means to defeat evil in the Harry Potter books. It lets us quote movies like the Avengers from the pulpit when a character says, you were made to be ruled, and when another one says, there's only one God. Now, I'm not saying we agree with everything in these things, but when we see these little upshoots of truth anywhere in the world, we can grab onto it and follow it to Christ and bring others along with us. I mean, think of the impact that this has on evangelism. If we don't understand this, And someone says, you know, I really respect the selflessness of Gandhi. And we say, well, you know, he wasn't a Christian, so I can't have anything to do with him. Or somebody says, I really appreciate the depth of friendship between the characters in Harry Potter. And you say, well, that has some non-biblical themes in it, so I'm I'm not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Or say, you know, the character of Loki in the Avengers movie makes some really insightful points about who we are as people. It's like... Well, he's posing as a Norse god, and the Bible says there's only one god, so can't have anything to do with that. I mean, people are going to think, at best, that being a Christian means no fun. means you can't respect other people, means you can't read good books, means you can't see good films. At the very worst, they're going to think it means hating all of those things. And so when you connect it to Christ, they're going to be like, okay, why would I want to come to a religion that makes me hate 
everything else in the world. But if we grasp this, if we grasp that all those things are upshoots of the truth that is Christ at the bottom of all things, and if we know how to celebrate those things and connect them back to Christ. You like friendship and faithfulness in these characters? I do too. Let me tell you about one who is faithful to death. You like the self-denial of a man like Gandhi? I do too. Let me tell you about one who denied himself the glories of heaven for your benefit. Do you know how to do this? How to latch on to truth wherever you see it and connect it back to Christ? This is a powerful witness to an unbelieving world. Now, as enticing as this is, we can't forget the other side of the coin. See, all three of these things, the fact that the truth is a person, the fact that the truth is eternal, the fact that the truth is exclusive, land us at what Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is incredibly unpopular to our world because everyone sees it as arrogant. Everyone sees it as prideful. Everyone sees it as a challenge. I want to argue this morning that it's not. It's an invitation. You see, if any of us said, oh yeah, this guy Jesus, he's the only way to God, if we came up with that, it would be arrogant and prideful and a challenge. But in 8 through 11, and we don't have time to look at it, Jesus basically says, I am God. And because this phrase comes from God's own lips, it's an invitation He says, no one comes to the Father except through me, but through me you can come to the Father. You know, we apologize for this statement. We act like it's in people's faces, like it's fighting words. It's an invitation to come to the Father through Christ the Son. Billy Graham, the evangelist, whenever he was interviewed on television, on radio, he'd often get challenged on this point. Reverend Graham, do you really claim that Christ is the only way to God, that that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And without fail, Billy Graham would say, no, I don't claim that. He does. And because of who he is, I believe him. And you should too. Billy Graham would just turn it on whoever was asking him the questions. Like, no, I don't claim that. Jesus does. And because he's God, because he knows what he's talking about, you should believe him too. Have you heard this call? you heard this plea from Christ to come to the Father through him? If you've not heard it this morning, I would urge you, listen. And look at what he's calling you to. He's not calling you to death. He says, I am the life. He's calling you to come and have a room in the Father's house. He's calling us to good things. If you haven't responded to that call, I would urge you this morning, answer that call. Respond to that invitation. But to those of us who have responded, who have heard the invitation and gone to the Father through Christ the Son, what do we do? How do we respond? Verses 12 through 17 give us two ways that we respond to Jesus. And again, I want to emphasize this is a response to Jesus. This is Jesus saying, you have a place in heaven. Here's how you live in light of that fact now. Remember, we're asking for wisdom about how to live in this life. Our longing for truth is about this life largely, and how to live well in it, how to make sense of it. So if Christ comes as the truth and meets that longing, how do we respond to it? What are we to do? First, we respond with kingdom-focused work. Listen again to verses 12 through 14. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I mean, Jesus says some surprising things here. You will do greater works than Jesus did. Ask anything in Christ's name, and he will do it. And so we have some trouble making sense of this. I mean, I don't, I don't know all of you. I'd like to meet all of you, but I don't know all of you. I do know that none of you have fed 5,000 people with two loaves and a few fish. I do know that none of you have raised someone from the dead by speaking. I almost said I don't know that some of you, that I know that none of you have healed someone with leprosy, but there might be a doctor here who has been involved with someone with leprosy. I know that you haven't raised someone from the dead by speaking. I know that. Jesus did that. So what could he mean when he says we will do greater works than these? If we stop thinking individualistically and think about what the church has done since Christ has gone to the Father, we have no problem with this. Hospitals are the work of the church. Education and public schools are the work of the church. Teaching people to read and write historically is the job of the church so that people can read the Bible. Feeding the hungry, clothing the sick, caring for people, working for restoration and justice is all the work of the church. Not to mention the best thing, the billions of souls that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that have come to the Father through Christ the Son. All because Christ has gone back to heaven. He says you will do greater things because I am going to the Father. And from heaven, Christ's body that's left on earth works and continues his work. This is what it means to pray in Christ's name, to ask for the kinds of things that Christ is about, to work with Christ for the kinds of things that he works for. Reconciliation, healing, redemption, salvation. This is what it means to ask in Christ's name. So it means responding with kingdom-focused work, but also with spirit-empowered obedience. Listen again to verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Christ says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The way you respond to the truth is by living in line with it. It means loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It means loving our neighbor as ourself. It means dying to ourself, taking up our cross and following him. Now, Jesus knows that this is a tall order. He knows we're sinful, we're selfish, we're forgetful about these commands. And so he promises to send a helper, the spirit of truth, that will live inside of us and empower this obedience. In John 16, Jesus tells the disciples that the Spirit's job is not to teach them new things, not to give them specific guidance, but to remind them of what Christ has already done and to lead them into more truth about who he is, what he's done, and what he calls us to. Walking by the Spirit in obedience doesn't mean waiting for new revelation, doesn't mean waiting for specific special guidance for dealing with the complexities of life. It means being constantly pointed back to Christ so that no matter what happens in the world, we might respond as he did. This world still doesn't make sense. We still long 
for truth, even as that longing is met by the Spirit who dwells in us, by Christ who came as the truth. He continues to meet this longing through the Spirit, and he leads us into all truth. You see, we think we need our longing satisfied by knowing what's going to happen next, knowing what's tomorrow going to be like, knowing we're going to be secure in a week, a month, five years. Christ meets our longing for truth by enabling us to honor him no matter what happens. We don't need to know. As he says in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Trust in God. We don't need to know. We don't need to know what's going to happen. We need to know. We need to meet the truth. We need to know the one who has the future in his hand. This is how Christ meets our longing for truth, by showing up as the truth and living inside of us. Do you have this spirit? Do you know this Jesus? Have you met this Christ? Are you involved with him? Are you related to him? If you're not, again, this morning, hear the invitation in these words of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth. We thank you for coming as the truth, for coming and shining in the darkness as the light, for coming and bringing us to life. Father, we thank you for this invitation this morning, and as we respond to it, as we go from here, we pray that you would help us to respond with obedience, to respond by working for the kinds of things that you are about. Father, we pray for help as we walk through this world. We pray that the Spirit would constantly remind us of the truth. And Father, being reminded of these things, being reminded of you, we pray that you would help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Father, thank you for sending the truth. Thank you for calling us to him. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.